look, they're just super high growth areas and there's piles of startups out there that are clamoring to get these people. And so the competition for that talent is extreme. Um, but look, at the end of the day, it's, it is about more than just dollars, um, unfortunately, uh, for the, the DOD in this case. Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, in part one of a two-part series, why the Air Force is struggling to retain airmen and how tech plays a role in that. It's Wednesday, February 7th, 2024. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast, where you'll hear the latest news and trends facing government leaders. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Billy Mitchell. Here's what's happening now. According to a new analysis from FedScoop this week, most major federal agencies have now taken some kind of action on the use of generative AI tools like ChatGPT and Google's BARD. While many of these actions are still preliminary, growing focus on the technology signals that federal officials expect to not only govern, but eventually use generative AI. A majority of the civilian federal agencies that fall under the Chief Financial Officers Act have either created guidance, implemented a policy, or temporarily blocked the technology. Across the board, the approaches vary, highlighting that different sectors of the federal government face unique risks and unique opportunities when it comes to generative AI. FedScoop reporters Madison Alder and Rebecca Howell have produced a chart showcasing all the different ways agencies are approaching the nascent technology, which you can find on FedScoop.com. Speaking of the federal adoption of AI, agencies that use Microsoft's Azure cloud service now have access to its Azure OpenAI service through the cloud platform, permitting use of the tech giant's AI tools in a more regulated environment. Candice Ling, Senior Vice President of Microsoft's Federal Government Business, announced the launch in a Tuesday blog post and said, The move enables agencies with stringent security and compliance requirements to utilize the platform's AI services at the unclassified level. The announcement comes as the federal government is increasingly experimenting with and adopting AI technologies. Agencies have reported hundreds of use cases for the technology while also crafting their own internal policies and guidance for use of generative AI tools as previously reported. Ling also announced that the company is submitting Azure OpenAI for federal cloud services authorizations that, if approved, would allow higher impact data to be used with the system. You can read more about these stories and much more at fedscoop.com. The U.S. Air Force in December approved a new round of bonuses worth up to $600,000 that are designed to retain existing manned aircraft and drone pilots, combat systems operators, and air battle managers. The move showcases the challenges the service is facing in keeping airmen on board. But according to my guests, despite the major financial incentive, that may not be enough. Egan Renderer, chief technologist for Shift 5 and a former operator for the U.S. Navy, joins me to discuss the Air Force's retention challenge and how the tech that airmen work with every day plays into that. Egan, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast today. Yeah, happy to be here and uh, appreciate you taking the time. Absolutely. Well, really excited for our conversation. And, uh, you know, it, it comes from an impetus of some news that came out late last year. Um, with the Air Force in December announcing a new round of bonuses worth up to $600,000 that are designed to retain manned aircraft and drone pilots because there's been a significant shortage of pilots. So I wanted to start there with that that news angle and kind of ask you, um, with with that shortage and that, that effort to look to retain and keep some people on uh, amid that shortage, um, how do you think pay and bonuses are doing our, in terms of a solution to be able to keep pilots around to solve some of the ongoing aviation talent problem that the U.S. military is facing? 
Yeah, I, I, I hearken back to, to the days when I got out of the military. I think my reenlistment bonus at the time was 100K, um, and I was a, a lowly enlisted guy. Um, and uh, the reality is it, it really wasn't so much about the money as it was the opportunity. Um, and the the private sector held such an allure because they, there were sort of these problem sets and these capabilities and tools and technologies that I knew I could work with outside the, the DOD or outside the military, at least, um, that simply wasn't afforded to me um, in uniform. And so while I, th I th do think part of it is is financial, um, you can certainly um, attract and retain some talent uh, just with raw cash. Um, I, I, I do think it boils down to the opportunities that these folks are going to have to work with. And especially when you're talking about some of the more cutting edge things like the, the use of drones in um, either the, the DOD or the private sector, like that area is so high growth right now. And there, there's sort of this alignment of other technologies that is amplifying that opportunity. So AI and, and like very specific parts of AI, when you start talking about computer vision or um, the enablement of, of flight technologies uh, in a truly RF denied environment and things like that. Um, look, they're just super high growth areas and there's, piles of startups out there that are clamoring to get these people. And so the competition for that talent is extreme. Um, but look, at the end of the day, it's, it is about more than just dollars, um, unfortunately, uh, you know, for the, the DOD in this case. So what is that? I mean, just to kind of give myself and, and also the listeners kind of a, a look on the inside, uh, particularly on the military side, you're kind of comparing it to the private sector and some of these grand opportunities with the latest tech, then what does that mean the military looks like currently with its sort of, um, you know, legacy systems kind of yeah. uh, lack of equipment <laughs> and things like that? Yeah, I, I do think it, it certainly depends on where you're working uh, inside the military. Like the closer to the, the super pointy tip of the spear you get, the more um, cool tech you get exposed to and get to work with. But, you know, I mean, that, that is a it's an inverse funnel or an inverted funnel. Rather, um, there, there's only so many slots at, at that super pointy tip. Um, and when you're talking about, you know, you, you need pilots to fly every one of the aircraft that we have. Um, and some of those are, are super exciting, you know, cutting edge. Others are, you know, the B-52, which is in what, 70 plus years old at this point. Um, so it's, you know, the, that really advanced tech is making its way into the DOD. And I will say that the Pentagon is getting... Uh, it's it's improved significantly in in their ability to start incorporating some of this cutting edge tech uh, much quicker than it has in the past. Um, you know, but it it's it's still a giant organization. It's still you know bureaucratic in nature by necessity, right? The, the a giant large organization like that needs to have some bureaucracy in order to keep things from flying apart. Um, I, the short answer to your question is it's improving. Right, we're we're getting better about getting that um, interesting tech incorporated in at least in like innovation cells and things like that much more quickly than we used to. Um, you know, I I look at some of the the recent experiences I've had uh, supporting DoD out in the field, um, looking at the innovation cells that they have um, even forward deployed, um, doing some really interesting things like with drones and uh, additive manufacturing on site at forward operating locations. Um, they're, they're getting much better about it. And I do think that will help, you know, you, you sort of combine that with the, uh, the financial incentives 
and it's certainly going to help things. Um, but there, there are larger problems, I think, that are contributing to this uh, than just um, money and and opportunity. Like you, you do have some um, some impact just in terms of like fleet size and the number of hours a pilot gets um, at the stick and and that sort of thing. Uh, which are significantly less than what they were 10 or 15 or 20 years ago. Very interesting. And we, we, you know, obviously there's so many facets of technology that can be applied to the whole life cycle of a, of a flight. Um, one of which is sort of, you know, the, the wheels on the ground, the planes on the air, we're making sure that yeah. this, this baby can fly that sort of maintenance aspect. And, and I know that that's something that's incredibly hard to do with that sort of predictive nature, mm -hmm. but a lot of this technology AI and such is making that better. So talk to me about predictive maintenance sort of as a strategy to manage supply chain problems and how sure. it adds to like uh, overall job satisfaction as well as mission capability for for those flights. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think you have to sort of dig into the numbers um, before you dig into the like the outcomes. So look at it this way. Um, right now, not quite 50 percent of our uh, fleets across the, the Air Force, and I'm, I'll just use Air Force for the example, but right around 50% of the fleets are past their designated service life. In other words, we're, we're talking about over half the aircraft are older than they were designed to be um, and still be functional, right? And then you also look at the, the fleet sizes, um, which like this isn't, you know, this isn't everything, but um, during Desert Storm, there were approximately 4,000 uh, fighter aircraft in the Air Force. Today, there's approximately 2,000, right? Back then, every pilot was getting 18 to 20 hours a month of flight time. Today, they're looking at somewhere between six and eight hours a month, right? So first of all, the, the thing that pilots love to do most, which is fly, uh, they're getting less opportunity to do that. The, the aircraft that they're flying are aging out. And by nature, the older an aircraft or any mechanical thing gets, um, the more it's going to break down. So then you have to start looking at, okay, what's our mission capable rate or whatever. Everybody calls it something a little different, but we'll, let's use mission capable rate for today's conversation. And you go all the way back to like, how do we, how do we get new pilots in, right? Because as we're treating uh, talent, we need to be adding talent. Well, that starts for the Air Force, that starts at the, the T-38, their trainer, right? Well, their mission-capable rate on their trainer um, is not good. Uh, the T-38 doesn't get a lot of attention because it's not a, a new super whammy aircraft that people are you know, real interested in. But my goodness, it's pretty important because that's how you certify new yeah. pilots. And their mission-capable rate is so low, in fact, um, that they are not certifying the minimum number of pilots per year uh, that they're required to in order just to keep up with with the um, current demand. So, you know, not taking into consideration something popping off in um, Indopaycom or something like that. And that, that if you look at that problem, that mission capable rate problem, it, it's throughout all of our platforms in DOD. And it's not just aircraft, but, you know, for this conversation, we'll, we'll stick to things that fly. Um, but you can you can look and like, Take the F-35 or the F-22. The F-35 has a 1.3, if I'm, and I need to double check my numbers, but I think a 1.3, uh, sorry, trillion dollar uh, operation sustainment tail associated with it. And even with that, their mission capable rate is below um, what it should be. And so now we have to start in looking into, like, how do we impact this? What, number one, what's the problem? Is, it is there truly a supply chain problem? 
or is there a problem with the way that we go about uh, maintenance and sustainment of things uh, in the DoD, and particularly with particularly with aircraft, um, we sort of take this uh, no fault found maintenance approach, which is, hey, you know, this thing's not acting right. Here's a list of the twelve um, components that could uh, be a factor in that, and sort of start replacing those until the problem goes away. And that's a a, a very like a super simplified version of it, but that's sort of the way that we do maintenance today because it's not really data driven. It's data driven in so much that I have a maintenance laptop, I plug it into a thing, I download some data, and like it'll give me error codes, right? Um, what we haven't done though is treated these platforms as um, things that radiate data, like piles and piles of data. The problem is that most of the data that these things radiate sort of evaporates off into the ether. You have components that are talking back and forth thousands of times a second. And somewhere in those thousands of messages per second is a little needle that's, that's buried. Uh, some thing that will um, inform you of a problem sort of in advance. Uh, think of it as a leading indicator. And if you were to harvest and capture and analyze that data, um, just like we do in, in the rest of like the enterprise IT world, um, you can develop a, a fairly accurate conditions-based maintenance capability. And that's been proven, right? There are organizations like RSO and others that are working on this problem and it have had actually a, a tremendous amount of success, even with a pretty minimal amount of data coming off of these platforms. Um, but if you approach it as a data problem, you approach the platform as a computer, which it effectively is, it's a it's a collection of um, very small uh, real-time uh, components that are operating back, you know, communicating back and forth and operating in sort of in symphony with each other as a computer. Um, if you instrument it like that and you approach it from the standpoint of treating it as a data problem, you can actually develop a pretty interesting and pretty accurate conditions-based maintenance capability that will tell you, right, aircraft's in the air, I saw the first indication of premature failure of this component. I'm going to send a message to the maintainer so that they can be waiting on the tarmac when this flight touches down, part in hand, do a part swap, not have to guess and not have to go through a series of, you know, five or six or seven components that they're going to swap over the course of weeks and then do check flights and things. But actually, no, like, here's the problem. Here's the component. Swap it out. That then feeds into, you know, just in time, um, inventory of these parts and a really solid understanding of what parts we need to keep on hand and where we need to have strategic placed reserves. Um, if we're going to go into this particular area of operation um, and send aircraft there, here's the, the set of parts and supplies that we need to have available uh, within one or you know an hour or a day or a week's lead time, whatever the case may be. At the end of the day, it's all data, right? It, it's no different than the data that a factory uses to be able to to build cars or trucks or, you know, that a, a store uses to keep their inventory on the shelves. Uh, we just haven't tackled it as a data problem historically. And how do you do that? Just up in the focus on data or there, is it a, no, issue, a it's, culture issue? Yeah. It's so the, the real issue is that <clears throat> we haven't done a good job of instrumentation um, to date. Like we, we rely on the organic capabilities that the platforms have, which are usually very, very, um, rudimentary, right? So most people think, well, it's an aircraft that's got a flight data recorder. It does, you're right. Um, that flight data recorder is recording probably single digit percentiles of the total data that that platform is producing. 
um, if you get off of aircraft and you start talking about ground vehicles or maritime, it gets very close to zero other than, you know, really, really large systems will have some sort of um, error logging, that kind of thing. That's usually vendor specific. So like if it's got a, a Cummins engine or a CAT engine or something, there'll be a, a maintenance computer for that engine that can download error codes, much like you would plug into your car, right? But there's there's no sense of like, hey, we want to um, do full take data acquisition, retain that data, do real-time analysis to look for leading indications of premature failure or you know security events or something like that, but then also aggregating that data, uh, right? We have, for instance, um, you know, we're, we're working with... Um, DOD programs where we're doing that data acquisition, we're doing that real-time analysis, but then aggregating that data in some place like Advana, where other organizations like RSO can go pick it up or directly compute against it for doing the type of work that we're doing or that they're doing with conditions-based maintenance on um, a handful of the fire aircraft and some other platforms. Like there are systems of authority where this data can live it, it really, though, it has to start with the, the instrumentation and sort of the preparation of that data to make it useful, right? So it's not just a pile of ones and zeros. Um, that is important. I need all those ones and zeros, but then I need to do things like translate them and make them human readable and add context and metadata um, and tag it and label it and have a data dictionary so associated with it. And then put it someplace where where uh, other consumers can get to it to do uh, interesting things with it, whether that's train ML models, or you know do maintenance modeling, or, or whatever the case may be. But it does start with that uh, that full data acquisition, which today is just not an organic capability that was ever built onto these platforms. And so it is a it's a retrofit on existing, which can be done with relative ease. It's it's not a huge lift if you do it right. Um, but it's also, you know, we, we have to take this into consideration on, on the next generation of aircraft that we're producing and sort of bake into them this um, self-monitoring and, and self-healing capability to keep that mission-capable rate as close to 100% as you can conceivably get it. You can learn more about tech in the U.S. military at thedailyscooppodcast.com. And make sure to tune in Thursday for part two of my interview with Renderer. The Daily Scoop podcast is available on all podcast platforms. If you've already rated the podcast on your platform of choice, thanks so much. High ratings and good reviews of the show help more people to find it. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. Adam Butler and Carlin Fisher help put the show together and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. Again, tune in to tomorrow's episode with part two of my interview with Egan Renderer. Until then, I'm your host, Billy Mitchell. Thanks so much for listening.